Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Just the Republicans are in essence saying to Trump, die already. Quote, you have a lot of folks who are just wishing for his mortal demise says former Michigan Congressman Peter Meyer to McKay Coppins for Coppins' new piece in The Atlantic. Quoting Meyer again, I want to be clear, I'm not in that camp, but I've heard from a lot of people who will go on stage and put on the red hat and then give me a call the next day and say, quote, I can't wait until this guy dies, unquote. Coppins says ex-Congressman Meyer describes this strategy as actuarial arbitrage. As Coppins notes, it's certainly a passive strategy, as he does not note, but should be evident from today's headlines. There is also a more aggressive version of the strategy that appears to be being practiced right now by grand juries and district attorneys and senators investigating special counsels and muckrakers who want to investigate Charles McGonigal and FBI New York. And this alternate strategy could be summarized by simply emphasizing different words when you say what Peter Meyer told The Atlantic. Not, I can't wait until this guy dies, but rather, I can't wait until this guy dies. The district attorneys first. In Washington, per CNN, the federal grand jury hearing testimony in Trump's stolen classified documents and potential nuclear espionage case have gotten some from two individuals hired by Trump to search his New York headquarters, the Florida Storage Unit, and the New Jersey golf course where all the bodies are buried. 
Well, one body anyway. We know nothing of what they actually said except that they did not invoke the fifth. Back at the ranch, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg has reincarnated the Stormy Daniels hush money case and, to quote the New York Times, is nearing a decision about whether to charge Trump and laying the groundwork for potential criminal charges against Trump in the coming months. To his grand jury way downtown yesterday, Bragg dragged the most aptly named figure in Trumpian history, former publisher of the National Enquirer and blackmail conduit David Pecker, who is the, well, the Pecker who tried to blackmail Jeff Bezos into turning the Washington Post into a pro-Trump daily by threatening to expose Bezos' affair with my former Fox sports colleague Lauren Sanchez, and Bezos told him to pound sand. In the Stormy Daniels case, Bragg has the testimony of Trump's former attorney and fixer Michael Cohen, who already did time for this crime, and his office has subpoenaed phone records. And the Times says Bragg wants Trump Organization employees Jeffrey McConney and Deborah Tarasoff to testify to the grand jury, as well as Pecker's former editor Dylan Howard. And yes, this is a crime involving a porn star, a publisher named Pecker, a bunch of subpoenas and the laying of groundwork. In Atlanta, Fulton County DA Fannie Willis is trying to block the public release of the report by the election subversion special grand jury there, and the grounds she has cited should give you a broad hint. The report should not be released, she says, because decisions on indictments are, quote, imminent, and publishing it could jeopardize the rights of, quote, future defendants. And since she did not say defendant or defendants, it means there are at least two of them. And realistically, you've only got like three future defendants in the Georgia case anyway, and they're Lindsey Graham, Rudy Giuliani, and Trump. Moving on to the Senate, less certain and with greater potential for grandstanding is something I've been screaming about since last week's revelations about the attempts to fabricate something out of nothing by former Attorney General William Barr and his loser special counsel, John Durham. As you already know, Barr and Durham tried to give a veneer of investigative legitimacy to the gaslighting about and suppression of the Mueller report and the Trump-Russia scandal by, quote, proving, unquote, that Hillary Clinton did it or Bill Clinton did it or Lou Clinton of the 1966 New York Yankees did it. In the kaleidoscope that is Trump-related lawbreaking, the outrageousness and likely criminality of Barr using the Justice Department to try to cover up crime has escaped the notice of almost everybody. But Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois told the Washington Post that Durham's, quote, abuses are, quote, outrageous and constitute, quote, one of many instances in which Trump and Barr weaponized the Justice Department, unquote. And I like his choice of words there, weaponized. More importantly, Durbin is chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee and promises, quote, a hard look at those repeated episodes and the regulations and policies that enabled them to ensure such abuses of power cannot happen again, unquote, which is both fine and dandy which does not quite have the impact or the implication of saying we're going to haul in Barr and Durham's fat asses and put them on the witness stand in primetime. Because once again, it may be Susan Collins who keeps saying that some malefactor or other has learned his or her lesson, but it's her Democratic colleagues who actually seem to believe that. 
if Senate Judiciary Chair Durbin was too tepid for us, at least House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan, the Roy Cohn of the new McCarthyism, got his pee-pee whacked in public by the Department of Justice. Jordan's whole shtick this year will be to try to run an investigation about the Trump documents investigation, to do a Durham, if you will, or failing that, he'll go for the silver medal and beat his chest about why they won't let him run an investigation about the investigation. Well, it'll have to be the silver. I have mentioned before here the Linder letter, the 2000 document from DOJ to the House about how it has been departmental policy for what is today about 90 years to never give Congress anything on an active criminal investigation. Sure enough, per The Guardian, the assistant attorney general, Carlos Urarte, wrote to Jordan an updated version of Linder telling him to get lost and underscoring, quote, disclosures to Congress about active investigations risk jeopardizing those investigations and creating the appearance that Congress may be exerting improper political pressure or attempting to influence department decisions, unquote, you think? Still... For all of this, and let's recap, two district attorneys, three grand juries, one annoyed judiciary chairman, one rebuffed judiciary chairman, one porn star, and one pecker, the potentially most explosive story alive remains the arrest of the former FBI New York lead on the 2016 Trump-Russia case, the man at the center of things as that office forced James Comey to reinflate the but her emails Clinton smear just 11 days before the election. The man who turned out to have a wife in one city and a mistress in another and was taking bribes from foreigners while still at the FBI and who is now under arrest for taking 25000 a month from the Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska he was once investigating. None other than Champagne Charlie McGonagall himself. We now have the McGonagall-Deripaska connection, elevated to confirmed status by the authority of the written word in the arrest warrant for McGonagall. We now have the admittedly anonymous source, supposedly a former McGonagall colleague at FBI, telling the independent news site Spy Talk about leaks out of the New York office in October and November 2016 to Rudy Giuliani and others, quote, I would not doubt that Charlie played a role in them. Quote, wouldn't surprise me. It just wouldn't surprise me. And now we have the story from Business Insider about McGonagall bringing home bags of cash from his Albanian friends and leaving them around his New York apartment where his 2017 girlfriend, the one who thought McGonagall's wife was already his ex-wife, where she could find them, which makes it very obvious that Charles McGonagall was a 24-7, 365 days a year, hot and cold, running blackmail victim FBI agent waiting to happen. It was the Yale history professor Tim Snyder who first tweeted the kind of meta view of Charlie McGonagall that stitched together how what got him arrested could feed back into not just the Trump-Russia conspiracy, but how the Trump-Russia conspiracy got buried inside the Trump Justice Department and how Comey wound up sabotaging Hillary Clinton and, days after that, whoever got the New York Times to essentially clear Trump on Russia in 2016. And in his substack, it is again Professor Snyder who really did offer a chilling big picture. Let me quote him at length. 
Quote, we are on the edge of a spy scandal with major implications for how we understand the Trump administration, our national security, and ourselves. Snyder continues, the reporting on this so far seems to miss the larger implications. One of them is that Trump's historical position looks far cloudier. In 2016, Trump's campaign manager, Manafort, was a former employee of a Russian oligarch, Deripaska, and owed money to that same Russian oligarch. And the FBI special agent, McGonagall, who was charged with investigating the Trump campaign's Russian connections, then went to work, according to the indictment, for that very same Russian oligarch, Deripaska. This is obviously very bad for Trump personally, but it is also very bad for FBI New York, for the FBI generally, and for the United States of America. But wait, Tim Snyder says, there's more and worse. Quoting him again, we must revisit the Russian influence operation on Trump's behalf in 2016 and the strangely weak American response. Moscow's goal was to move minds and institutions such that Hillary Clinton would lose and Donald Trump would win. We might like to think that any FBI special agent would resist, oppose, or at least be immune to such an operation. Now we are reliably informed that a trusted FBI actor, one who was responsible for dealing with just this sort of operation, was corrupt. And again, the issue is not just the particular person. If someone as important as McGonagall could take money from foreigners while on the job at FBI New York and then go to work for a sanctioned Russian oligarch he was once investigating, what is at stake at a bare minimum is the culture of the FBI's New York office. The larger issue is the health of our national discussions of politics and the integrity of our election process. Phew. Ah, but like the horror film, where just when you thought you'd seen the last knife, we have the further contribution of the estimable William Bunch of the Philadelphia Inquirer, who half a century ago this morning, right around now, was just starting to work as a news reporter for the student newspaper, The Dial, at Hackley School in Tarrytown, New York, under the new editor of news and later editor-in-chief, me. Bunch has written an epic piece, that's half a century of them now, in which he notes that if McGonagall's arrest is the tip of an iceberg that involves the 2016 FBI working not just with Trump, but with Trump and Russia, it could also mean that the FBI, Trump and Russia were working with, however unknowingly, a fourth conspirator, the New York Times. Will asks, quote, how coordinated was the effort in that New York field office to pump up the ultimate nothing burger about Clinton's emails while poo-pooing the very real evidence of Russian interference on Trump's behalf, and who were the agents behind it? What was the role, if any, of McGonagall and his international web of intrigue? Was the now-tainted McGonagall a source who told the New York Times that fateful October that Russia was not trying to help Trump win the election before the U.S. intelligence community to determine the exact opposite, if not McGonagall, just who was intentionally misleading America's most influential news organization and why. Will wants answers from the New York Times 
I want answers about McGonagall and the rogue FBI New York field office. Because to circle back to ex-Congressman Peter Meyer and his guys in the red hats who secretly wait for Trump's, quote, mortal demise. No, we can't wait until this guy dies. By the way, Trump was right about something. Jair Bolsonaro is applying for a visa to stay in Florida. So there are terrorists coming in through the southern border? Still ahead, CNN has figured out how to solve all its ratings problems. Take that little post-show chat Bill Maher does with his guests on HBO while they're itching to get to the booze at his post-show party and put that in the middle of the news every Friday night. So it's time to retell the saga of how Mar and I know each other 45 years and twice we nearly had fist fights over the details. Plus, two sports legends are gone. Hockey's Golden Jet and the drumbeat of Cleveland. And in worse persons, it is hard to believe anything the utterly corrupt Megyn Kelly could do now would be shocking. But this one, this one will make your jaw drop. That's next. This is Countdown. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey guys, this is Matt Jones, Drew Franklin from the Fade This Podcast. We got a great episode coming up, picks in all the sports, football, basketball, we do them all, but here's a preview of this week's episode. Nothing to do with anyone personally, but Creighton is the team every year that the nerds, you know, the basketball nerds, they're like, you know, who's ready to catch Creighton, you know, watch Creighton. And I'm like, I don't want to watch Creighton because I agree with Shannon the dude today. Creighton's never going to win anything. Stop talking to me about Creighton. They're not never the, not, gonna, the, not the Big East tournament. Well, I mean, they could maybe they win the Big East tournament, but it'll only be luck. But like, they're always like, you know, a sleeper team. That cool. Like that guy who I told you had eight title teams. One of his title teams was Creighton. Is not winning the national championship. It's yeah, I don't not, have him doing that. That like that's why do we all have to act like Creighton is a, is a is a good team. Creighton's like the band they all say you should know if you really knew bands. <laughs> and then they're never at any of those. And then they're never, yeah, exactly. And it comes time for the Grammys, and they lose out to, like, you know, Lil Durk. And you're like, see, I knew Lil Durk was better. Why are you, t- why are you telling me? See the whole time. <laughs> and this episode was brought to you in partnership with DraftKings. To hear more, listen and subscribe to Fade This on iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, Doug Gottlieb here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making the now perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines the raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. With the available iForce Max hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower further than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma delivering trail dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. 
With new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. Still ahead on Countdown, who's that new face of baseball on the cover of its top video game? No, seriously, I'm asking, who is that guy? He was the 52nd most valuable player in the sport last year. Why is he on the cover? Plus the answer to all of CNN's problems. Put Bill Maher on once a week to do something. I'll retell the story of how he and I met in 1978 and nearly had a fist fight. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need you can help. Every dog has its day to Dallas and Cody's friends rescue and a puppy named Memphis. Age uncertain, details unclear. Memphis, though, is a puppy, maybe some kind of gray mix of a hound and a lab, but there are two leg fractures, and since there are no scratches or wounds, it looks like they were inflicted by punches or kicks deliberately. Memphis is a good candidate for recovery. They've set up a Giving Grid Square to raise some money. You can find Memphis there or on my Twitter feed, and your donations and retweets are gratefully accepted. I thank you, and Memphis thanks you. This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, a lot of loss yesterday. Hockey's golden jet, Bobby Hull, has died three weeks after his 84th birthday. He changed the game, first with the slap shot, then with the curved stick, then with the big money jump to the National Hockey League's first rival, the World Hockey Association. Hull was the first NHL player to score more than 50 goals in a season. He was most valuable player three times. He played until he was 41, and all told, he scored 913 goals. I interviewed him at Madison Square Garden when he returned to the NHL in 1979, and he said one of the most mind-blowing things I have ever heard. I must think of this quote and him saying it in his gravelly voice at least twice a month. I asked Bobby Hull about his memories of playing in New York, and he said, Oh, that's behind me now. Never mind the past. We're here in the future now. We're here in the future now? In Cleveland on August 24th, 1973, a baseball fan named John Adams tried to excite interest in the always moribund Cleveland Indians baseball team by going to the bleachers and buying two tickets, one for himself and one for his enormous bass drum. John Adams pounded on that drum incessantly through three World Series, 11 playoff rounds, three all-star games, a perfect game by Cleveland pitcher Len Barker, and about six of my live reports on baseball games being telecast by NBC. John Adams died yesterday at the age of 71. In more mundane stuff, baseball with its big promotional reveal yesterday, the selection of which young star player would grace the cover of the MLB The Show video game 2023 edition. 
Well, apparently they didn't have any young star players for the cover of MLB The Show because the guy in the cover is a Miami Marlin infielder named Jazz Chisholm Jr., who hit a career-high 254 last year, who has struck out 230 times in 204 career games and has a career OPS+, plus, which is a stat measuring how much above average you are in batting average and slugging percentage. He has a career OPS plus of 103, just average, is 100. Chisholm is very flashy on the field, but honestly, if he got sent back to the minors at some point in 2023, it would not be a big surprise, except to the baseball people who make these idiotic marketing decisions. I believe they outsource them to the consulting firm called We Step on Rakes Incorporated. Thank you, Nancy Faust. And lastly, happy birthday to one of the best play-by-play men in sports, my friend John Shorthouse of the Vancouver Canucks, who first did that job on radio in 1998. Took over full-time in 1999 and moved to TV in 2008. His crisp, succinct, enthusiastic delivery is right on the money. He is clearly a fan of the team he covers, but he would never cover up their mistakes. And the finest measure of his work is that every time I tweet about how good he is at it, large numbers of Vancouver Canucks fans reply by telling me to shut the hell up because they don't want a Canadian or American network or big market team to find out about him and steal him from them. I like to think of John as my older Canadian brother. I like to, except for the fact that he only turns 53 today, or at least... That's what he says. Now to the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze. Good old George Santos. Nothing big this time. Just more of that old TV commercial cliche about, you know, you wonder if some people just stop trying. This all started because he unexpectedly won the congressional seat formerly held by retired Congressman Tom Swasey. Well, George Santos's district office on Long Island has something unusual and untrue about it, naturally. The window and the big green awning on it both read, quote, Congressman Thomas R. Swasey. Knowing George Santos, it's possible he's now using that as an alias. The runner-up, another congressional representative, Lois Frankel, Democrat of Florida, member of the Safe Climate Caucus and anti-fracking advocate, and according to stock records, she owns as much as $195,000 worth of stock in six different oil and gas companies, including ConocoPhillips and Diamondback. The conservative Washington Examiner reported this, but there is no denial from Congresswoman Frankel, who told the paper that her investments are, quote, managed independently by a money manager who buys and sells stocks at his discretion, unquote. Could be true. I had one of those. But it is the wrong bloody answer. Firstly, congresspeople and senators should not get to own any stock, any stock at all. But if you are a climate change Democrat, if you're in the caucus, the only correct answer is my stocks are managed independently by a money manager and I had no idea about this. I will instruct him to sell these stocks immediately and to never again invest in fossil fuels. 
The end, Congresswoman. But our winner, Megyn Kelly, fired by Fox, fired by NBC, now reduced to pretending she's still on TV and streaming it, and not even through a service, just from her own website. Ew. Her confidence will never wane, nor will her arrogance. She'll never know she's where she is now because of things like her tweet during one of the football playoff games. Quote, announcers for this Eagles 49ers game just spotted the first lady in a box and, of course, call her Dr. Jill Biden. Wonder if she realizes what a wannabe she looks like insisting on this fake title. Get a real MD or just work on your self-esteem, unquote. Standard fascist insult template number 37. Ann Coulter used to claim I didn't go to Cornell, only she did because I didn't go to the arts college like she did. To Megyn Kelly, Jill Biden is not a doctor because she doesn't cut people open on an operating table. The first lady has a doctoral degree in education from the University of Delaware. She is Dr. Biden. But it was left to NYU law professor Melissa Murray to post three earlier tweets from Megyn Kelly, which begin, quote, Dr. Sebastian Gorka, these people aren't that, and Dr. Sebastian Gorka, discussion on whether, and Dr. Sebastian Gorka, the jihad, Dr. Gorka has a PhD in political science from a university in Budapest. But that's not even the real punchline here. Jason Patterson from Washington University notes that there was somebody else who had the same exact degree, Ed D, Doctor of Education, as Jill Biden does, somebody who was addressed as doctor, just as Megyn Kelly does not think Jill Biden should be. That would be former University of Albany professor, Dr. Edward F. Kelly, Megyn Kelly's father, her father, the one who... Well, to paraphrase his own daughter, wonder if he realized what a wannabe he looked like insisting on this fake title. Get a real MD or just work on your self-esteem, Dad. Megan Kelly, who just called her own father a fake. Today's worst person in the world, Dr. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What up, everyone? It's Lunchbox from The Bobby Bone Show, and I'm here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car, like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive. You can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. 
Let's go places. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms, 21 plus only. Virginia only, new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. to the number one story on countdown and my favorite topic me and things i promised not to tell well cnn has now made it official i told you two weeks ago that chris licked had hit on a brilliant idea to put some kind of humor programming into his lineup i mean intentional humor not that unintentionally hilarious show he has on in the mornings maybe a primetime show though chris licked have you ever stopped to think about what a funny name that is chris licked Yeah, are there more details? Chris Licht now denies this, but there was an idea around CNN to have a show with Jon Stewart or Trevor Noah or Arsenio Hall going on the air every night in primetime and somehow doing the newscast and just praying nothing newsy actually happened. And of course, the brilliant idea that Chris Licht hit on is not brilliant, not new, and not his. Many CNN presidents ago, as I also mentioned to you, a man named Walter Isaacson brought me in to discuss the merits of trying to have Jon Stewart do a daily or weekly show on CNN. My meeting to talk about this with Walter Isaacson was on August 3rd, 2001. Anyway, CNN has made its big push into comedy. The little add-on chat that his guests on his Friday HBO show are roped into overtime will run... As part of CNN's news hour at 11:30 every Friday night, Bill Maher's Overtime. It's previously been shown only online or on HBO's streaming service or on-demand service or whatever, and it doesn't matter because CNN is down to 92,000 primetime demo viewers. So it's really unlikely you would have ever heard of this if I were not mentioning it to you now. Though unresolved is the question of how they will handle the fact that Bill likes to swear and Bill likes his guests to swear. And I know this because it turns out I know Bill for nearly 45 years. This has a great backstory to it. Sometime in 1985 or 86, I saw a movie on cable called DC Cab. There was a character in it. Clearly, the actor portraying him was talented and funny and distinctive. But for some reason, I felt like I knew him from somewhere and I really, really disliked him. I remember the feeling was so strong that I stuck around to watch the credits to find out who he was. His name was Bill Mayer, M-A-H-E-R, Mayer. Well, I had a teacher named Bill Mayer, but his name had a Y in it. So no, it wasn't him. But I knew three things. He was talented. I didn't like him and I knew him from somewhere. This is pre-internet, of course. So no way to find out where I knew him from. 
Hallowell's annual film guide would be my best bet. Maybe he'd be in the new one coming out. Checks watch just eight or nine months from now. Eventually, I found out that where I knew Bill Maher from was college. He was in the year ahead of mine at Cornell University. I knew he wasn't working at my radio station. He wasn't in my college. Maybe I had him in a class somewhere. I could never nail it down. I like to say I have a photographic memory, but it's Polaroids. And sorry, I didn't always bother to put labels on the Polaroids. Almost everything that has ever happened is stuck inside this big, empty head of mine, but often key details like who, what, when, and where, they're just missing. I forgot to write them down. And honestly, in this case, it was not worth the effort. I knew I was, what was the right word, aware of this Mar guy when we were both in college. Occasionally, especially after I went from ESPN to MSNBC in 1997, a writer would note the coincidence of university and years and ask me about Bill Maher, and I would just say the same thing. I don't remember if he was in a class with me or I knew him somehow, but I was aware of him at Cornell. On November 23rd, 2000, I went on his old show, Politically Incorrect. It used to be the late-night show on ABC. This was an all-sports episode. Lennox Lewis, the boxer. Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks. Todd Zeal, the first baseman of the New York Mets. Me, then from Fox Sports. When I met Bill Maher, I asked him about Cornell. I didn't know anybody there. I didn't see anybody. I didn't do comedy anywhere. I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't meet you. Well, that settled it. Except... During the recording of his show, and Mar contradicted me on some minor point, I got angry. And there was no reason for me to get angry. And I dismissed the anger, and I dismissed the moment, except on the way home from the show, I kept thinking, I know him from school. Somehow. No matter what he says. And I know I didn't like him in school. Over the next decade, Bill got his weekly HBO political show that is still on the air and now will be expanded to CNN. That'll work. And I went back and turned MSNBC into a political network, and the internet happened. So the Cornell juxtaposition became easier for reporters to stumble over. So I would get asked about it every couple of months, and I would tell them the same thing. I can't remember the details, but for 20 years now, I have been convinced I was aware of Bill Maher at Cornell. Finally came the day, March 20th, 2009, when they asked me to go on real time with Bill. And Bill Maher, Cornell 78, asked me, Cornell 79, something about colleges. And I said, well, as you know, we overlapped at Cornell. And I don't know if we met, but I was aware of you there. And he interrupted me and said, no, you weren't. So I just went back and answered his question. Now, after every episode of his program, Maher has, or at least had, a little party backstage. I mean, catered with booze and with more guests than there are people in the studio audience, and usually a bunch of models. Having done that show four times, where they will fly you in first class and put you up for the weekend in L.A. just to do their show, and there's a party, I began to suspect that, like many of the guests, Bill Maher does the show just so he can have the party. Anyway, not long after it started, over comes Maher, and he's mad at me. And mind you, Even if his allegation that he is 5 feet 8 is correct, I'm just under 6'4", so he's giving up a lot of height during an argument. And he starts yapping about how I should stop saying I was aware of him at Cornell, and I'm just trying to get publicity off something that never happened, and who could remember that kind of crap anyway? And he never talked to anybody in four years in college because, quote, except for the Ithaca High School students I sold drugs to, unquote. And I notice he's getting heated 
And this is just triggering that core belief of mine that I was aware of him in college and I didn't like him. And now it becomes clear to me he didn't like me either. He's getting loud enough and he's swinging his arms around now and it looks kind of funny, but apparently it happens in the office sometimes. And this is when Scott Carter, who was the executive producer whom I definitely did know since like 1992 when he worked at Comedy Central with my friend Alan Havey, Scott Carter comes over to defuse the situation. Scott was a three-piece suit kind of guy with the thumbs tucked in the vest who would call a group of men fellows, as in, say, fellows. So Scott comes over and says, say, fellows, with your Cornell alumni reunion here. And of course, this makes Bill Maher even angrier. Let me ask you something. I used to drive down from Hobart to see concerts at Cornell. Have to say, I think Cornell was the leading concert school in the nation back in our day. And now Scott starts to list who he saw in concert at Cornell. Robert Palmer and the famous Grateful Dead concert at Cornell at Barton Hall. He was there. And I say, I went to Springsteen. And Mar mumbles something about Loggins and Messina. And I know what Carter is doing here. He's diffusing. And we do a couple of rounds of who saw which Cornell concert. And finally, I say, I can top both of you comic geniuses. I saw Robert Klein in concert at Cornell. Now, it is criminal, but there's an excellent chance you may not know who Robert Klein is. Suffice to say, as prominent a comedian in the 60s, 70s, 80s as George Carlin or Richard Pryor, HBO itself was built on annual George Carlin concerts and annual Robert Klein concerts and everybody else. And Robert Klein wasn't quite as deep or eternal as George Carlin, but he was really on the money during Watergate and during Reagan. So I say, I saw Robert Klein in concert at Cornell, and Marr looks at me funny and not angrily and says quietly, I was at that too. I saw Robert Klein too. And I don't really register that Marr's mood has now utterly changed. He's not angry. He's confused. Well, I say, I can still top you because after that concert, I interviewed Robert Klein. Now Bill Maher starts to squint and he looks at me and he looks at Scott Carter and he looks back at me and he says, wait, I interviewed Klein after that concert too. And I'm smiling through all this and smiling and smiling and smiling. And then suddenly, simultaneously, it hits Bill Maher and me at the same moment in the same fullness of detail. And I stop smiling and I shout at Bill Maher, you! And he pulls his arms in towards his stomach and kind of bends forward at the waist and covers his face with his hands. And he says, oh, God, I'm so sorry. Jesus, it can't be. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And while the anger wells up inside me so powerfully I can almost see it in my own eyeballs, Bill Maher's concert-going producer Scott Carter is really confused. Say, fellows, did I miss something? Did I have a brief stroke or episode? And I say, Bill and I just remembered how I happened to be aware of him in school. And Mar still has got his hands over his face, and people are looking at us, and Bill is shouting apologies, and I say, you want to tell him, or should I? And Mar just shakes his body no and mumbles, no, God, you do it, I can't, I can't, I can't. And it all came back to me. For years, 
I would tell people the story of the Robert Klein concert at Cornell University in 1978. Our radio station co-sponsored his appearance along with the Cornell Concert Commission, and in the contract, we specified that a couple of us real comedy nerds at the radio station would get to go backstage afterwards and tape a brief 10 or 15 minute interview with Robert Klein. Basically, we paid him, not much, but we paid him to do an interview. And when my pal Andy Grossman and I get backstage to talk to Robert Klein and we have our two microphones and two mic stands and three tape recorders, there is this guy, this short guy, and he's yelling at the chief of the Cornell Concert Commission and he's yelling at Robert Klein's manager and he's demanding that he should get to interview Robert Klein because like Klein, this kid says he is a stand-up comedian and he publishes the Cornell Humor Magazine and he points at me and he says he should get priority over these, quote, Corporate sellouts from the Cornell radio station. I hated him on sight. Oh, wait, I say to him in 1978, and he's small and he's got dirty, stringy hair and he's loud. And I say, you're the publisher of the Cornell Humor magazine, the Cornell Widow? And he snorts and says, I wouldn't get caught dead publishing that corporate sellout Cornell Widow. And so I say, oh, so then... That means you're the publisher of the Cornell Alternative Humor Magazine, the not-so-big-red or whatever it is they call it. He says, no way, they're corporate sellouts. I publish this. And he pulls out a stack of mimeographed pages stapled together, and there's like a drawing on the front of a naked girl, and handwritten it says it's his comedy magazine. And I look at Robert Klein's manager, and I say, so it's 10 o'clock, and if you leave now while, while this idiot is screwing this up, the, the limo can still get Mr. Klein to Elaine's in the city before it closes, right? And the manager is wildly impressed. You know of Elaine's? And I said yes, and I felt like an adult. And I also said, if we give this guy five minutes of our time right now while we're setting up our tape recorders, can we still have 10 minutes with Mr. Klein? And the manager says, good plan. I like the way you think. And he points to the kid and gestures for him to come along. No, the kid shouts. I want half an hour. These corporate sellouts deserve nothing. And now I'm getting angry. I say, buddy, so far, all the corporations in the world have paid me about 100 bucks. So I threaten him. Now, mind you, I believe this is literally true. Since 1967, when I was eight years old, I have started two fist fights, two in 55 years, I am a man of peace. I am loud, but I am a man of peace. But I say to this guy, you now have two choices, kid. Five minutes with Robert Klein, or I hit you in the face. And he runs to where Klein's manager is still gesturing towards him, and he screams, corporate sellout! And he disappears to do his interview, and behind him he leaves his little homemade mimeograph, 10 or 12 page humor publication. And I pick it up and I read it and register it and dismiss it before I leave the building. And if I had only remembered what it said on the cover, all the years of mystery and I was aware of him and all that would never have happened because the cover of the magazine read Bill Maher's Comedy Magazine by Bill Maher. And now back in, well, 
technically this is correct, back in real time at the party in the Hollywood studio in 2009, the producer Scott Carter says nothing. And Bill Maher is still doubled over in shame. And I say, are you satisfied that I was aware of you? And he mumbles, yes. And I say, will you ever question my memory again? And he mumbles, no. And he says, if I need him to do my show or a charity benefit or something, just call. And he says he's ashamed and he offers me his hand to shake and we shake. And finally I say, and, and by the way, Bill Maher of Bill Maher's Comedy Magazine by Bill Maher, are you a corporate sellout? And he says, kinda. And that's how I was aware of Bill Maher in college. What is CNN going to do about all the swearing on Bill Maher when they run the overtime segment every Friday night? Well, I guess we'll never find out because who's going to watch? Countdown has come to you from the studios of Olbermann Broadcasting Empire World Headquarters in the Sports Capsule Building in New York. Thanks for listening. By the way, all that reference there, the Olbermann Broadcasting Empire Sports Capsule Building, those are jokes I used to do at Cornell among my friends there. Did not include Bill Maher. Here are the credits. Most of the music, including our theme from Beethoven's Ninth, was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. They are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments from Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was Larry David. Everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 756th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him now while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex-
National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free 